Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Medical Mamas. Allie and I are so excited to have with us a certified child life specialist that both of us have actually been very fortunate to work with over the years. Amy Ballin joins us from Atlanta, Georgia area. She has experience with surgery, ortho, burns, trauma, and emergency department. We are just so fortunate to have you with us. And as we are recording right now in the summer and then going into winter months, we are going to be focusing on burns as it's something that unfortunately most families and kiddos cross in their paths at some point. So Amy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Hello and welcome to Medical Mamas. I'm Allie here with my co-host, Melissa. We are the founders of Medical Mamas, certified child life specialists and mamas of little ones. Hey, I'm Melissa. Our goal for this podcast is to provide parents with resources to aid in navigating acute medical experiences, general wellness, child development, and life transitions from birth through young adulthood. We are so excited for you to be joining us. So tell us a little bit of your background working with families and kiddos who have experienced burns of various degrees. So I worked on an inpatient um, unit that served a burn population for a little over three years full time. At that point, I think I've kind of seen the gamut of ages, types of burns, anything you can imagine about burns, we've seen it. And although my focus was primarily inpatients, I've learned a lot about their journey following discharge into the outpatient world and kind of what that journey looks like when families start to re-navigate this kind of new normal that they're facing. So it's a population that I'm very passionate about. I think something about burns that I don't really think about with other populations is it kind of follows you for the rest of your life because you have the scars and the trauma associated with however the injury happened that kind of stick with you. And I think for that reason, specifically, I I feel very strongly about the resources available to the burn population and the lifelong kind of commitment that these patients and families have to make to kind of rebuilding their again, new normal. That's something I don't think I, when we were brainstorming for this episode had thought of, there's so many things in the medical field that don't have an outward appearance to them that your body can heal and people may never know. They may never know that you had cancer just from looking at you. I mean, I remember, and we can talk kind of more about this later, but forming a relationship with our local burn foundation and going to conferences and meeting, you know, people in their forties and fifties who were burned as a toddler, you know, seeing how that kind of impacted them for the rest of their lives. That's why I feel so strongly about the resources because you see so many other populations in the hospital that have endless resources, not that they don't deserve that, but I think a lot of people don't necessarily realize the impact that burns have on a patient for the rest of their lives. Right. And like beyond the physical, like the mental component too, like you were saying, there could be the mental trauma of an association with however that burn occurred accidental or not, whatever was the cause of it could create that lifelong impact mentally as well. That's really interesting. Multifaceted. Never thought of it that way. 
You mentioned different types of burns. I know that there's different degrees of burns. Are there also different ways that you can get burns? Yes. I think when people think of burns, that is typically what they think of the first degree, second degree, third degree. You know, when I think of burns, I don't think of it like that to me. I'm like, oh, I'm sunburned. But when kids come into the hospital, we classify it as superficial, partial thickness, full thickness, just kind of the medical terminology, layman's terminology, second degree, third degree. But the types of burns that we see kids get definitely varies. Scald burns are the most common that I have seen while working inpatient. We see flame burns, we see chemical burns, we see electrical burns, we see burns that come from a treadmill, which you would never even think of. We've seen kids come in from house fires. We've seen kids come in from non-accidental injuries. It's really kind of the gamut. We've seen kids that come in with a tiny little burn on their finger that are totally healed and fine within a couple of weeks. And we've seen kids with burns covering half of their body that are going to take months to heal and will never look the same and will require different therapies for the rest of their lives. So anything that you can kind of imagine, we've seen, we've experienced, we've treated, and we've learned how can we do better for the next patient? Because it's really a never ending learning opportunity because everyone kind of experiences their journey to healing differently. So you were talking about scalds as being kind of the most common that you see. So just to make sure we're all on the same page, since terms can sometimes be used differently in the hospital and at home, scald is like hot drink spilling over on toddler if they're reaching up on the counter type yep. scenario. So exactly. That scenario is what we see on the most frequently. So think pulled a cup of noodles out of the microwave that was too hot and it spilled all over them. Think mom's coffee spilled in the car all over a toddler. Those are kind of the most common injuries that we see based on that mechanism. We're pretty used to seeing torso, chest, shoulders, neck, face. Um, I would say that's the most common in terms of dressing changes that we do. Scald burns make up 65% of the burns that we see. So a pretty big number, 20% other than that contact burns. So hot stove, hand on hot stove. That's, gotcha. that's pretty common as well. So you mentioned the scalds primarily going down the front of a kiddo's body. So you're talking face, torso, maybe shoulders, visualizing that that's remarkably debilitating when we're talking about dressing changes and a toddler who wants to be on the go to have like that core section of their body limited and or like having pain management, right? Exactly. And, you know, thinking about that age with any sort of medical procedure or stranger danger, separation anxiety from their parents, having somebody in their face, touching their face, it's scary enough. Having somebody in your face, touching your face when it's an excruciating pain, it's kind of the same idea. And, you know, the thing with burns is when the burn is covered, it's not totally painless, but it feels much better than when the burn is exposed. So that's why typically with dressing changes, our staff tries to move quickly because when that burn is exposed, that's the most painful part. You know, you see kids get their dressing changes once everything is kind of getting cleaned and, and wiped off and whatever they're doing for that specific burn. That's the hardest part. As soon as they're wrapped up and kind of picked up by a parent, they deescalate so quickly, snap of your fingers because that burn is covered up. They're not feeling the pain as strongly as they are when it's exposed, especially again on their face, which you have a stranger in your face, touching your face, causing pain. You don't know them. And also keeping a dressing on anybody's face is kind of difficult, let alone a toddler who just wants to touch and 
pick everything off and they don't want these strange things touching them, not understanding that that's actually how they're healing. I've only seen a limited amount of burns and dressing changes. Can you describe maybe what these types of dressings look like or what to expect as a parent that would be going on your kid's body? Sure. So silver is actually what most of the dressings have in them. That's kind of the healing property for burns. And, you know, the type of dressing will vary based on the location of the burn, the thickness of the burn, where in their healing journey they are. They may use something different on day one, two, three, then three, four out of the burn. But typically that will go directly over the burn after it's washed out with typically gauze, some sort of medical soap and water that will go over the burn. And then they'll wrap it with gauze just to keep that covered and in place. So the dressing change itself typically involves removing that outer layer of gauze. They'll take off whatever the silver property dressing is. So after they unravel all of the gauze, they'll take that off. They'll wipe it down just to make sure that any dry or dead skin is kind of sloughing off with it. They're making sure everything is essentially germ-free. There's no infection. And then once the new dressing is on, they rewrap it. If it's like a torso, chest, neck burn, they'll put a like a pressure inducing shirt over it, A, so the kids won't kind of pick at it and B, to kind of keep everything in place. So question for you, dressing change is a hospital term. And we talk all the time in child life about how kids hear one thing and how they're thinking. I think a great example is dressing change. They might hear dressing change and be like, why do I have to change my clothes? So what are some ways that parents in this situation to help explain what a dressing change is to their kiddo to help make it a little bit more digestible for them so they know what's coming? Sure. So I think the word dressing is very easily interchangeable with bandage and a phrase that I've used a lot with my kids who are old enough to understand is, you know, when you have to have a bandage change daily, you know, you don't wear the same shirt every day because your shirt gets dirty. It's the same idea. And we want your new bandages to be nice and clean. We want your, you know, whatever the parents are using, your burn, your boo-boo, your whatever term they are comfortable using, you want that to stay nice and clean. So just like you get a bath every day, we're going to keep doing that just with a special soap to make sure there's no germs. Everything is doing what it's supposed to be to keep your skin healthy and clean and healing the way it is. So that's kind of the child-friendly term that we'll use, just bandages. Most kids at this point that are old enough to understand that have scraped their knee and had a Band-Aid and know what a Band-Aid or a bandage is. Along with that, just talking about how parents can help their kids, how can parents provide support for their kiddo during these dressing changes and then the rest of their burn journey? So what I've noticed, and this is 100% understandable, is a lot of parents are afraid to either touch their child or, or support them because burns can be scary to look at. Oftentimes, especially if it's a fresh burn, it can smell like a burn. Um, and I think parents are often fearful of supporting their child through that. At the end of the day, you are going to be their safest person. So if you are present, holding their hands, talking them through what's going on, if the location of the burn allows for comfort positioning. Of course, we would always encourage that. I think the other thing to note, and this is with anything medical, really anything in life, a parent's anxiety is so easily transferable to a child. So understanding that parents are going to have a lot of emotions associated with this as well. 
doing their best to kind of compartmentalize and keep it together for your child while you're in the room. If that's something that's difficult for you, being present and anxious may not be as helpful as stepping out and allowing aunts or a grandparent or a child life specialist or someone who can support your child as opposed to being present, super anxious, tearful at the same time, because that anxiety that the parents is exhibiting may be a, a reason that the child is just as anxious. So just kind of keeping that in mind as well, that if you're going to be present to support your child, try and keep yourself in check and then excuse yourself to take care of yourself and handle your emotions and get some fresh air and do whatever you need to do. But remembering that especially for these infants and toddlers, which we see come in with burns so often, they don't understand what's going on, but they're picking up off of your emotions. I think the other thing to kind of note there um, is the distraction tools that we so often use. While we expect our, especially our little ones to be upset during dressing changes regardless, trying to mitigate some of that with a light spinner for our infants and toddlers. If there's a favorite show or character to have that on, whatever the child's comfort items they're used to at home to normalize that environment, very typical kind of child development, child life things that we see, remembering that even though a burn dressing is sometimes lengthy and scary, these are still things that we can utilize to help normalize the environment and understanding that crying and being fearful and tearful are normal reactions for these kids. Okay, off of all of that, I have two different questions. The first one, I imagine that because such a high percentage is scald burns and a large percentage of those are probably due to hot drinks or hot food or whatever, that parents do have a lot of guilt associated with the burn or what happened. And so I think your comment on making sure that as a caregiver, you're in check is so important. That thought was going through my head too, Allie, as well about the guilt piece. Amy, do you ever find yourself supporting kind of the greater family in a situation where there's an accident, but maybe someone is feeling a higher amount of guilt because of what happened? Definitely. And I think that is kind of twofold. I think part of it is having a great relationship with my interdisciplinary team when I worked with the burn population between our social worker, the medical side of the burn team as well, our physical and occupational therapist, our burn psychologist. I think the interdisciplinary collaboration is a huge piece of that because we get to know these families so well and understanding that while as a child life specialist, I feel like we're often seen as the safe person, you know, we're not making the kid get up and walk. We're not doing all the scary things. We're there to support them. Parents often feel like they can unload things on us because we are that safe person. So I think there's kind of a fine line between supporting the family and knowing when it's appropriate to reach out to the social worker or the psychologist or the attending, depending on what the situation is, an extra layer of support for that family. But I think it is within our scope as a child life specialist to kind of support these parents and siblings, especially that accidents happen, you didn't do anything wrong. I think a lot of that guilt is, oh, if I had only been watching them or pushed the cup of noodles back further, you know, whatever the scenario is, I think that's where a lot of the guilt comes from. But parents who are going to sit there and think, if I only did this, if I only did that, are going to carry that burden of guilt instead of understanding that these things happen, but you're in the right place. We're here to do whatever we need to support you and your child. How can we do that moving forward? Just relying on the resources that you have in the hospital to know when it's appropriate to reach out for additional support for that family. 
That's really great. I am slightly familiar with that specific burn clinic, but had no idea that there was a psychologist involved on the team. So I think that's incredible and goes to show that the knowledge of burns and the emotional impact that they can have is there and they're aware of it, which is amazing and such a big support. Because like you said, we can support these families, but really they probably need more in-depth support than what we as child life specialists can provide. Okay. Another question in regards to helping prepare your kiddos and helping them through these things. You mentioned that burns often have a smell associated with them. Do you describe that smell to kiddos? That's a tough one. So I think for the three-ish and under population, the goal is kind of let's try and make this happen as quickly as possible because we know that a lot of that is fear. Again, there's going to be that pain association once the burn is exposed, but a lot of that is just fear of these strange people that are all wearing the same scary outfit are touching me and touching my face and it doesn't feel good and I hate you. But I think that preparation piece comes into play when they're a little bit older and they can also kind of understand the mechanism of the injury. In terms of the smell, the dressing change itself with the burn being exposed in the pain and the association of the dressing change and knowing what's going to happen. What I've noticed is that part is scarier in itself than the smell they're going to smell. So it's not something I typically touch on unless I haven't totally information seeking school age or teenage patient. But at that point, there's a lot more that might go into the preparation based on, again, the location of the burn, how extensive it is, but we don't typically see those age patients as often because that mechanism of injury is usually pretty different. Again, maybe firework related, maybe flame related. And I think another thing that to mention about these fall burns from earlier, our infants and toddlers, their skin is thinner than school age and adolescent patients. So that, you know, if I were to spill a cup of coffee on me, it might hurt. It's not going to feel great. It may not cause the same depth of burn that it would on a 12 month old, for example. That's a really good point. In terms of the smell, like it's so interesting for students, the smell is always one of the first things. Like if you need to step out because this is an unfamiliar smell, feel free. But as an observer in the room, you're not experiencing the pain that children are. So it's something that I always feel like I have to prepare an outsider for, but the patient itself, there's so much more to the equation that Mm -hmm. the smell is not the top priority for me. So you mentioned the skin being different in infants and adults and how like probably in the back of our heads, all of us kind of know that, but you may not think about it in the moment when the cup of coffee spills over. So I know for me, if I touch a hot stove or something, I will, you know, put ice or run cold water on my finger, whatever, if I touch a hot pan, if my kiddo gets burned at home, what are some like key steps in assessing next steps, whether it be putting a cold compress on, what should we look for when making that decision? And of course, to all of our listeners, we provide psychosocial support and we are part of the medical team. Go with your gut and talk to your own physician. But with someone working so closely with burns and having the privilege of having Amy on, what are some of those key steps or visuals that you want to be like, oh, we need to pack up and seek medical attention? 
So I think you kind of hit the nail on the head with the cold compress, you know, cold compress. I think a lot of people have heard somewhere in the rumor mill that butter is no, do not use butter. I know it's crazy. Do not use butter. Do not use essential oils or toothpaste or other ridiculous things that the internet has told you. None of those are helpful. Cold compress, cold water, cover the burn with, if you have clean, dry, sterile gauze, cover it with that. If not a clean bed sheet or t-shirt, all of that being said, seek medical attention. Again, I'm not a doctor. This is purely based on my own experience working with burns. I'm also not a parent with a child. I can't speak to that myself. However, if I were to have my own kid and they had any sort of burn that was more severe than a sunburn, you bet I am going straight to the hospital for medical attention. Because even if I think I can fix it at home, I would rather be safe than sorry and let them tell me you did the right thing by bringing them here. We're going to send you home and this is how you can follow up. I think the sunburn though is a nice concrete visual though for folks, because people know what that kind of like pinky red irritation looks like without it being like severe blisters or anything like that. So I feel like that's kind of a good benchmark. Like, are you in that area where like some cold compresses over the course of like a day or whatever will help reduce that? Or are we talking like they're open blisters bubbling or see a a pretty extreme you know if it's a scald burn and you see a pretty extreme difference in color between the normal skin and the burn skin don't pop the blister just (laughs) leave it be wrap it up medical attention is what you should be seeking the internet can be a great place if you're using appropriate credible resources but if it were me having worked with burns i would be going straight to the hospital I think another thing to add to when you seek out medical attention, any emergency department that you go to should have resources for a local burn clinic or individuals who specialize in helping with burns for follow-up. Okay, I still can't get over the butter. butter. (laughs) Are there any other myths about burns that you can think of? Um... I don't know that I would call this a myth, but I think just interesting things about burns that may cause people to think more. Three quarters-ish, roughly, of scald burns are preventable. So something to just kind of think about when you're making that cup of coffee or heating up the noodles or boiling water to make spaghetti. Most of the scald burns that we see, especially in our little ones, are preventable. So, of course, that's where all the guilt comes in. But it's just something to keep in mind when you're making dinner and your three-year-old is unattended and exploring the world as they should be as a three-year-old. And then I think the other interesting thing about burns in general is that overall, over the last couple of decades, burn injuries are trending downward, which I think is awesome. And I remember talking about this, you know, in one of our psychosocial burn rounds a couple of years ago is why, you know, why is our our prevention efforts working or kind of what is the cause of that? And I think it's definitely multifaceted between the prevention efforts, I think the kind of the technological aspect and the safety and child-proofed everything. And I think there's a lot of aspects to that, but just knowing that burns are trending downward and meeting people at these burn conferences I've attended it's interesting to hear about the mechanism of their injury versus what we're seeing now. So I think that's a fun little fact that's leaving everyone hopeful. What are some resources that folks can look for? The greatest resource that I've found because it is so multifaceted is Phoenix Society. So that's 
phoenix-society.org. I have been fortunate enough to attend World Burn Congress, which is an annual convention slash conference that they put on. They have so many resources. You don't have to attend a conference to benefit from them. They have resources available on their website for kids, for adults. And a lot of it is that psychosocial components of resuming normal life after a burn, understanding that it is a new normal and how to kind of navigate some of the challenges that you'll face with the physical aspect, the mental, emotional aspect, the medical aspect. That's been, I think, my greatest resource thus far. And they've done a lot of really good work on school reentry, which is a whole other component to burn injuries and going back to school and learning how to be friends with your friends again and talk or not talk about your injury. So I think that's been my greatest resource so far and something that even as a child life specialist out of the burn specific population, I will still reference from time to time. Regionally, we were incredibly lucky to have a burn foundation that was extremely involved with our hospital, our burn team and the adult hospital next door. I think one of the aspects of that burn foundation that is so, so important. And I think this is also my personal connection is camp. I feel so strongly about camp for self-identity and community building and all of that, but to be able to have a child go to burn camp after their injury and connect with other kids who have gone through something similar and understand that they are not alone in this and that they have friends and other people to connect with who understand and get it and have been through that. I feel strongly about camp. And while I haven't attended burn camp myself, I've worked with a lot of the families that have and can reconnect with them after camp and and year to year and just understand the impact. So that's something that even if the burn foundation in your area isn't necessarily as robust, there are camps that are regional. There are camps that are national. I think a quick Google search can give you an idea of where those camps are located but strongly recommend camp. Well, Amy, we have so enjoyed having you with us. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for listening to Medical Mamas. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at Medical Mamas LLC. Subscribe to our Apple podcasts and rate and review us if you like us. To get show notes, go to medicalmamas.org slash podcast. And you can even sign up to get show notes emailed right to your inbox and we'll email you every time there's a new episode.